HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. You're listening to Cutting the Curd, hosted by Ann Saxelby. You're listening to Cutting the Curd, hosted by Ann Saxelby. You're listening to Cutting the Curd, hosted by Ann Saxelby, broadcast live to the Cosmos on the Heritage Radio Network. Good afternoon, and thank you, Brian Kenny, for that awesome intro song. Uh, welcome to Cutting the Curd, Podcast. your weekly dairy dispatch on Heritage Radio Network. Uh, I'm your host, Ann Saxelby, and our show today has been generously sponsored by How Not to Raise Effed Up Adults. How Not to Raise Effed Up Adults is a blog written by none other than my mother, Pam Saxelby, <laughs> an educator and mother of three healthy adult children. I don't know who wrote that. I would not consider myself like the healthy adult child. But anyways, the blog is a running commentary on how not to mess up your children too much. Whether you're a concerned parent or a tormented child, these stories can teach you something about life, parenting, and growing up. Check it out at... Uh, uh, HTTP colon backslash twice saxelbypam.blogspot.com. She's very funny and she's right about a lot of things, much to my uh, annoyance. Um, so I would also like to take a moment to thank our producer, Jack Inslee, and our engineer, Nat Wiener. Um, today's show is all about New York City's milk supply, or milk shed, as it's technically called. I have two guests, um, Hillary Dennis, uh, who's just graduating from NYU and who wrote her thesis uh, about New York City's milkshed. And uh, we're also joined today by Leah Mayer, who is an expert in sustainability and who helps f facilitate and educate young people and old people <laughs> about how to incorporate sustainable practices into their lives. Uh, so thanks for joining us today, ladies. Thanks, Sam. Thank you for having us. <laughs> um, so, Hillary, I want to I start by asking you a couple questions. Um, I wanted to ask you how you came up with this project and what were you studying at school that led you to this, uh, this thesis? Well, I'm an environmental science major, um, studying about sustainability and just systems thinking, holistic thinking. Um, so I, <laughs> it's actually kind of funny, I signed up for this honors class um, thinking it was just a typical class and I got there the first day and my professor said, well, you're going to be writing a thesis. <laughs> oh, wow. So, yep, got into it that way, just dove right in. Um, and and I knew, you go to school where? Oh, NYU. Okay. Yes, the College of Arts and Science. Um, so I knew right away that I didn't want to do 
um, just a standard thesis, like a literature review. I didn't want to spend four months in the library. <laughs> so right away I thought, you know, I, I want to do some sort of maybe an ethnography and do a lot of interviews. And I have um, strong interests in um, farmers and food. Mm-hmm. So I thought maybe my thesis would be comprised of a bunch of interviews of different farmers, like traveling around. But um, time constraints right. ended up. Yeah, four yeah. months. I remember we met in February. So this yes. is a lot of work that happened in a short time. Yeah, and there's no real feasible way to drive all over New York State in four months and like interview tons of farmers. So I um, wanted to find a topic in farming and the food industry that hadn't been thoroughly researched and that I could really kind of investigate myself. So I started by calling all of my contacts and seeing what they knew, all my farmer contacts, all my the people in the food industry, um, to see what they knew about the industry and see if there was an area that I could really focus on. Mm-hmm. So I ended up in the office of Kurt Ellis from Wicked Delicate um, Films, who made King Corn. And, An um, awesome movie. I think they have a website. Do you know what their website yeah. is? Anybody? Wicked Delicate Films? I don't know. <laughs> it, either Wicked Delicate or, or look up King Corn. It's an amazing documentary about our food supply. And they're also doing some amazing education work these days. So mm-hmm. check them out. Yeah. yeah so you really ended up in, in Kurt's office. Yeah. And, and he was like, well, why don't you try to find out where all the milk sold in New York City comes from? Genius. Uh, genius. And I was like, okay, great, thanks. Extremely <laughs> so, difficult, but genius. <laughs> so he gave me the outline of a format maybe I could try to use. So I ended up um, inventorying 15 grocery stores in lower Manhattan okay. as kind of a sample set to start with. Um, I got into each dairy aisle. No one really questioned me, which is kind of interesting. Um, but I took down the name of the milk brand, location on the carton, um, the carton number, which I didn't know what it meant at the time. Um, marketing terms and like pictures and stuff they used and um, a few other things and then went from there so I collected this whole data set Um, and so did you have any I don't know prior experience at all with the dairy industry or, or any kind of knowledge of how the dairy industry worked or was this really the starting off point this was the starting off point I which had is no yeah incredibly incredibly daunting because you know the dairy world is kind of like going down the rabbit hole in Alice in Wonderland you know and, and I'm, I'm assuming much of our food supplies like that meat or any other commodity mm-hmm. um, but so before we talk more about how that initial research led to your thesis can you define the word milkshed for us sure it's um milkshed is along with food shed is analogous to the term watershed which basically describes um, the geographic um, boundary that outlines where all of the water um, flows and sources into one river. So the Hudson River, for example, has a watershed, and it's, it basically starts with all the tributaries that kind of feed into the main point. Mm-hmm. Um, say, which in like, ter- the, like the southernmost part of the Hudson River that then flows into the Atlantic Ocean. So if that... Makes sense. Does that that absolutely sense? makes sense. Okay. Yeah. And so that, of course, influences what kind of um, agriculture what can be performed in the area. And in New York State, um, the landscape is pretty ideal for dairy farming. Isn't that right? Right. Exactly. I mean, the dairy industry in New York State is one of the cornerstone, cornerstones of the agricultural industry in the state. Um, and we have, based on my research, <laughs> we have a rich, um, heterogeneous supply of farmers and milk within the state that needs to be supported. Right. And so I just want to read 
two or one little thing from your paper because um, I found that interesting. It's in the very beginning of the paper, and um, it said um, it was saying that um, in New York uh, in 2007, I believe, that the state's 5,683 dairy farms generated 23. No, $2.3 billion in revenue and sustained more than 20,000 farmers and employees while maintaining local businesses and rural communities. Each dairy farm earned an average gross income of about $408,000. Um, and that sounds really good. That sounds like we would have a really strong milk shed. Mm-hmm. But that's really not the case. No. I mean, that's, that's the gross income that isn't the net income <laughs> exactly <laughs> but it's very interesting i always think about this and you thought about it in your paper too I, I encountered it somewhere later on that you know where these facts come from and what facts are presented to you are pretty subjective mm-hmm. and so that looks like a pretty great number for a farm to be making four hundred eight thousand dollars a year but the reality of it is that many people aren't even breaking even and more are losing money and going out of business every year mm-hmm. um So, uh, so, but it wasn't always that way, right? At one point, New York City did have a very strong local food shed and local milk shed. Um, Can you tell us a little bit about, about that, about what, sort of how, how it came about, how it evolved, and now how we found ourselves? That's a big question. How, (laughs) how it came about in the beginning, in the 1800s? (laughs) Sure. um, I, I only did very preliminary research about this, um, just to get, a sense of, yeah, how it evolved. Um, but basically, dairy farms used to be located within the cities. Um, but as cities began to grow with, you know, larger populations, um, the farms got pushed out to the outskirts. And so they they became more um, established in the suburban areas. Um, and But I think there were a few dairy operations that persisted in, in the cities, mm-hmm. but they... Um, became really dirty and they were often fed um the distillery grains from like absolutely from breweries and from liquor production yeah they called it the swill milk because it was all of the grain that was all the spent grain fed to the cows and in turn made them sick and the milk quality was very poor exactly so a lot of the um citizens in the city were like we need this clean country milk so that um, engendered transportation routes from the farms that had localized themselves in the su- suburbs into the city. So that's kind of how, in my head, I visualized the milk shed starting to grow, the tra- like actually visualizing the transportation routes from the, s- the farms on the outskirts to the city. And in the beginning, what were those transportation routes? What was the method of transportation? By train. By train. Okay. Yeah. Uh, on my show last year, we had a woman named Mary Habstrit who came on and talked about um, the milk trains and how they um, helped feed New York City. And it was very interesting because she said that, you know, those trains had priority over every other train on the tracks, mm. over passenger trains, over everything. And they were like, you know, bullets. They would get into the city around 11 or 12 at night. The milk would be processed overnight and delivered the very next day. Wow. Um, so that's a pretty straightforward, you know, food shed. It's like local farms, trains into the city, processing happens in the city, you know, delivery to end consumer. Mm-hmm. Um, but so that system has kind of evolved from being a miracle of transportation in a way to a little bit of a nightmare. Um, what once supported all of these local farms is, you know, this, the industry that once supported all these local farms is kind of now destroying those farms. And I kind of want to talk about why 
why that is. Um, so I know that's a complicated question, yes. but um, can you tell us a little bit about how um, our milk shed has changed? Yes. Um, so today, the regional milk shed virtually doesn't exist. It's more of a national milk shed. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think it all has to do with how um, powerful corporations have become within the food industry. Um, these these national, multinational corporations um, have the ability to um, sell their products at a high price, make profit, but buy their raw milk from farmers by um, charging them the least amount of money they can. So they're taking most of the money. They're taking most of the profit. They're buying low and selling really high. Right. Um, But they have their... There are actually lawsuits going on right now about alleged monopolies in the dairy industry. Um, but these, these corporations have so much lobbying power that um, it's really hard for small farmers to kind of defend themselves, I guess. Right, because they were sort of, um, you know, goaded into, or not goaded, but just over generations, you know, the farms became more reliant on this system. And the system in the beginning didn't, you know, wasn't taking advantage the way that it is now. But now that these farms are quote unquote specialized, which is another term that sounds kind of nice, you know, right? <laughs> a specialized farm. It's like, oh, that's a farm that's an expert in one thing, milk production. But basically it means that, you know, these corporations have these farms in a stranglehold because that's their only source of income. They don't, exactly. they no longer produce many different products. They only produce milk, which has come, it's, it's picked up at their farms every other day and brought to a processing plant and then, you know, shipped out from there. And they really have no control over the product at all. Um, I was just a quick story. I was in Sullivan County last weekend, which once had, you know, a couple hundred dairy farms and now has 25. And um, the farms that I went to visit, um, they were all completely, you know, just kind of you know, not just downtrodden, but baffled at how Mm -hmm. the system works. Um, Can you tell us a little bit about how that system works, um, how the the milk gets from farm to um, our supermarket shelf? Sure. Um, Well, milk on the farm is raw, and that's something we all need to keep in mind. Unpasteurized. Um, Yes. Raw means unpasteurized, unhomogenized, so it hasn't been, um, the fat hasn't been dispersed, it hasn't been heated at a high temperature to kill all the enzymes. Um, and a tanker truck comes along every few days and pumps all the milk from the bulk tank where it's stored on the farm into the truck. And the truck probably, it's most likely that it visits a bunch of different farms. So right away at the transportation level, milk is pooled. Mm-hmm. Then it's brought to the processing plant where it is pasteurized, homogenized. Um, so milk, and in, in that on that level, milk is changed from raw to processed. Then... It usually let's gets talk, taken. Actually, let's talk just for two quick seconds about pasteurization and homogenization, because I feel like that's something that, you know, because we've done a little bit of research we know about, but our listeners might not know as much about. So can you explain pasteurization and homogenization? Um, pasteurization is when milk is heated to, I can't remember the exact. 160, one, 140-ish, I think in that range. Okay, so from 140 to 160 degrees Fahrenheit, um, it's, it's heated for about 15 seconds. Um, and the process is supposed to kill off um, bacteria, pathogens, and um, things that could cause sickness to consumers. Um, and homogenization is a process by which milk is forced through 
it's probably a, a membrane of some sort that disperses all the fat. So when you get milk at the grocery store, the fat doesn't rise to the top. It's actually all dispersed in. But with raw milk, your fat would rise and you'd be able to like scrape it off for cream. Which is always so good <laughs> when you can do that. Okay, but so it's brought to the plant. They basically, they process the milk, which disturbs its original state mm-hmm. and makes it homogenized and, and supposedly kills pathogens mm-hmm. in the milk. And from there, it goes to... It's either... Um, it's either broken up and it's broken up into different classes, I guess. Well, it's it's broken up into classes basically at the farm level. But um, milk can either be headed to the distribution center as beverage milk, or it turns into manufactured products, as you know, cheese and um, half and half cream stuff like that. So, um, but my focus was basically beverage fluid milk, and so that is what class one, class one. And how many different classes are there? Four. Okay, so, and is that based on quality? Yeah, I would think so. Class one beverage fluid milk has to be at a better quality than milk that's going to be made into cheese. Interesting, interesting. Um, yeah. It's, yeah. <laughs> so heart- then, <laughs> heartbreaking. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> well, um, not, well, you know, on the industrial level, but. On the industrial level. No, 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 mm-hmm. it's true. Everything's, everything's relative. Um, mm-hmm. But so basically, they're allowing for, um, a lower quality of milk to be turned into processed foods, which are then, of course, sold for even higher prices. Added value. Yeah. So that's, that's an interesting little tactic there. Mm-hmm. So yeah, then it goes from the processing plant to the distribution center of the grocery store and then finds its way into the dairy aisle at the grocery store. Hmm. So that, um, that, I mean... Again, seems seems fairly straightforward, but the problem is that one company is controlling that entire process, like you were talking about. It's it's base. What I found was that there are three major players along that distribution line. So there's the farmer, which maintains independence but contracts with the processing plant. Actually, maybe there are four players. Um, the trucker tends to be an independent trucker but is contract, contracts with the processing plant. The processing plant is the major player. These are the huge um, corporations that tend to monopolize, in quotes. We can say that. <laughs> okay, <We're laughs> tend to monopolize yes. the dairy <laughs> industry. Um, and then the distribution center belongs to, is part of the grocery store chain. So there are three slash maybe four. Okay, so it. farmer, trucker, processor, processor. distributor. Interesting. And so I was just thinking, you know, and, and reading your paper, the fact that really stood out to me is that all of the executives at these dairy companies are taking home upwards of $100,000 each per year. And the farmers are being paid a ridiculously low rate for their milk. And all of this sort of confusion about our milk supply and, and kind of confusion about the farming industry and how, or, you know, farms and how raw product gets from you know where it's made to where it's you know consumed they're kind of imbalances all across the board and that is one of the most glaring ones that if Mm -hmm. those people took less of that profit and put it back to the farms you know the system would be much more equalized and it's just ironic because at the rate that dairy farms are disappearing don't these executive real executives realize that if there are no farms they don't have jobs at the end of the day this is, this is really interesting because I, I was writing my conclusion today. <laughs> and um, one of my lines is that um, 
the industry, the dairy industry has built an empire, but its foundation is crumbling. And they, I don't really think that they see that, or maybe they do see that, and they're still trying to maintain, you know, some sort of veil or security, alleged security. <laughs> yeah. Well, we actually, we have to take a quick break. When we come back, um, we're going to talk more about maybe the, the, those different imbalances and how, you know, they can be, they can be righted. Uh, stay with us on Cutting the Curd. Welcome back to Cutting the Curd on the Heritage Radio Network. Um, I'm your host, Anne Saxelby. I'm joined today by two fabulous scholars of sustainability and dairy, Hillary Dennis and Leah Mayer. And uh, our show today uh, has been sponsored by How Not to Raise Effed Up Adults, uh, information and advice on parenting and growing up and uh, just family dysfunctionality in general, you can find it at http colon double backslash saxelbypam.blogspot.com. It's a very funny read. Um, so we were talking about um, corporations and their kind of, you know, um, their control over the dairy industry today and how it's kind of, it's a monopoly. Um, it is, it, it really is. I mean, it's being called out, you know, by law as that, but we, we kind of have realized that that's what's going on. So, um, can, I think it would be interesting to talk about, um, how that monopoly can exist. What are the pricing structures that, um, allow, you know, these companies to buy this milk so cheaply? Um, I know it's a complicated subject, but um, I would like to talk a little bit about the federal milk price and how farmers are paid for their milk and how that's decided. Mm-hmm. Okay. <laughs> um, I'm still trying to wrap my head around it, and I keep reading. Me too. Yeah. <laughs> at, what, at visiting these farms, too, we asked every farmer. We visited probably five or six dairy farms, and we said, you know, what? how much do you get paid for your milk? And they knew about it in average, and they're paid by the hundredweight. And so they knew the average dollar amount per hundredweight. But when we were asked, you know, when we asked them, like, how do they arrive at that, it just, it was like trying to explain somebody's, like, you know, 
the those awful mortgages you know what i mean like that kind of a system or a, a credit card bill that had all kinds of different you know exceptions and rules or a cell phone bill where you go over a certain amount and all of a sudden like things happen it was so nebulous and like confusing that nobody could give me a straight answer mm-hmm. so let's just talk about that for a second and see what's what the heck's going on with the milk price okay well um it all comes from the fact that the supply of milk is not attuned to demand Interesting. So um, cows will produce the same amount of milk, basically, you know, give or take every day. So you can't tell a milk, oh, demand is, I mean, you can't tell a cow, oh, demand has gone down today, don't produce as much milk. <laughs> um, so th- the cow is going to keep pumping out milk. And milk is known as a flow, flow commodity. So it has to be transported to market quickly or it'll go bad. Right. And farmers will lose profit. So um, you... Yeah, so so the cows are producing milk at the same rate, but demand can go fluctuate. up, can fluctuate exactly. Um, so there, in order for farmers not to lose income due to the system or the nature, you know, of this issue, um, the federal government creates sort of a a floor price for okay fluid milk. Well, first, um, fluid milk is priced differently than added value products. Okay. Um, but the prices are tied together. The, yes, they are. The manufactured products like cheese and stuff actually determine the price for fluid milk. It's <laughs> That's what they said. Yeah, the yeah. farmers were all like, it's tied to the cheese price. And I was like, geez, Louise. I mean, I grew up in Chicago where the Board of Trade is. And you right. walk by the Board of Trade and you see hogs, corn, cheese, milk. And you can see what the commodity price is on any given day. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's, again, the fact that it is not tied to any specific market, that it's part of this big nebulous system is a craziness in and of itself. It's, it basically comes from what, um, people are willing to pay for cheese in the Chicago board of trade or mercantile exchange, if you want to call it. Um, it, so it fluctuates daily based on what people at the trade want to pay for cheese and farmers get paid um, what's known as a blend price for their raw milk. So um, if they if they produce a certain amount of milk that is then bought by the processor, the processor has to pay the farmer based on what that milk is going to become. So there are different prices for fluid milk, for manufactured products. And then Again, they, those classes. Right. It's a blend of all the prices for those different classes from beverage milk all the way down to the crappiest milk that's used for cheese right <laughs> industrial cheese <clears throat> let's make that <laughs> distinction no i'm just kidding yes. <laughs> um yep and then there are a lot of different mechanisms in place and subsidies and things that um allow for fluctuation in demand but um can maintain or supposed to maintain the farmer income and so what is that price currently? Do you know what the price per hundredweight is at this at this moment in time? Or more or less. It doesn't have to be today, but in the last couple months. I don't know. Is it like around, I want to say between like t- 12 and 16? That sounds right. Yeah. When I was actually, yeah, if, um, when we were talking to the farmers in Sullivan County, they said, um, you know, about 15 mm-hmm. per hundredweight, which is again about 12 gallons. Um, but... It's very interesting because so this price was designed to keep farmers afloat, yet farmers' operating costs dictate that the milk be bought for $17 a hundredweight just for them to break even. Mm-hmm. Um, not even talking about turning right. profit. Right. Um, so that's crazy. So um, basically, 
this uh, uh, commodity is treated as any other commodity. Um, and, you know, it's just, it's, it's, the system is, the system is broke. It does, it definitely does not work. Um, so, I don't know, what, let's talk a little bit about, I mean, we're, we're sort of getting into the later half of the show, and there are all these imbalances that we were talking about before um, in how our milk is processed and utilized, and it's no longer tied to a place, and it's no longer tied to demand, and it's causing, it's wreaking havoc um, on many fronts, because you're an environmental studies major, um, what are some of the other things that just besides, you know, the, the milk price and stuff, what are some of the other, um, you know, consequences or effects of our dairy system today? Um, do you have things that you could talk about in that regard? Yeah. Um, well, there's a whole human health issue that goes along with um, drinking the milk that's produced today. A, a lot of the advocates for raw milk say that pasteurized and homogenized milk is completely not what we should be drinking and that it um it tends to lead to lactose intolerance and a a slew of different issues that we just have no concept or awareness of because because of this corporation monopoly Mm -hmm. um there are the environmental issues of having specialized dairy farms that house thousands of cows tens of thousands of cows um there are no proper waste management systems that are used on these farms, and um, we because get... Because they're confinement dairies. They're, yep, they're confinement, confined animal feeding operations, or CAFOs. Um, cows are either kept standing in their manure, or they're kept in um, concrete warehouses, basically, where they're hooked up to automated milking machines. Um, but these systems cause mass water pollution because manure flows off into you know, the streams. Um, there's a phosphorus and nitrogen issue as well with, um, I think. Yeah, that <laughs> yeah. makes sense. With, um, and then there's um, associated air pollution with methane that the cows all release. Um, and and so that's, those are like the major... Well, that's just what's happening on the farm. And then exactly. you talk about <laughs> transporting that milk to wherever it's going to go. And we should mention here that, you know, cows were designed to eat grass. And when they are raised on pasture... Not only do they, you know, improve the fertility of the farmland, but they also, you know, manage their own waste problems because, exactly. you know, if you've ever been in a dairy farm, those fields are splatted with cow pies, like, you know, in various places, it's not all concentrated in one, you know, area. It's a very, it's a very, um, re- you know, regenerative, 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 thank yeah. you, and restorative, you know, way of uh, maintaining your farmland. Right. Well, that's, I think, part of the problem here is that a lot of the, the problems that you're talking about is the, the legacy of the industrial farm and the legacy of the industrial era or the efficiency model. And so you have all these narrowly focused, overly efficient models that aren't producing anything that's regenerative or sustainable. They're producing waste. They're producing waste, and they're also producing the the opposite of biodiversity, sort of um, monocropping, and in or or sort of um, the opposite of diversity. Yeah. Right? And diversity, as we know, is a natural platform for thrivability. Without without sort of biodiversity in nature, without biodiversity in farming, you don't have thrivability. Yeah. So. Right. Cows are naturally part of a mm. system when they're on the farm. Um, although they've been raised by humans for hundreds of thousands of years, you know, tens of thousands of years, um, they 
they eat pasture, they poop, and then their hoof action causes the poop to go into the soil and revitalize the nutrients. I love and hoof action. <laughs> action yeah. is good. It sounds kind of like cows gone wild, you know? <laughs> it actually is a term that I found in my research. <laughs> um, yeah, and, then, and so there's this whole nutrient cycle happening on a traditional farm, a small farm. But on these industrial farms, there's nowhere for, no place for the manure to go. Yeah. Yeah. So it seems like, I don't know, um, these farmers in order to, America's dairy farmers, in order to regain the sovereignty of their farming and where their milk is going, they need to take a little bit more control of that, of that supply chain. Yes. And, and need to grow other things as well and become more diversified operations probably um i was just talking to somebody yesterday um really really interesting comment but they were saying that just in terms of food security and food sovereignty um the u.s i think the we're hovering right now at about two percent of the population um being involved in agriculture might be a little bit more than that but that was the last uh statistic that i heard um versus um 85 percent of the population in china still being involved in agriculture and thinking about where the world is headed and you know just what is going on with our food supply and all the problems that these um you know that arise when our food supply becomes delocalized it's just very striking to think like okay you know we might have you know all of the gadgets and gizmos in the world but like if it comes down to it you know we have to we have to know how to feed ourselves right farming is a natural process can't be controlled by science it can't be controlled by techno fixes as they call them or by corporations or by corporations which um have major connections with science and technology and they're they're pushing for um food being produced in more of a technological manner rather than just on a farm with pastures and cows and and government who then in turn regulates how those foods are produced and who's allowed to do what so i'm just really curious what you see that's going on that's really good and positive and and steps towards reclaiming this um process this natural process that you guys are talking about um, well, I think uh, just on my front, you know, uh, having the opportunity to go up to Sullivan County and talk with these farmers, it was really, really, um, I don't know, it was sad, but it was also very heartening because I think what needs to happen is, you know, reclaim, and there are models that already do this, that reclaiming control over that supply chain, whether it's a fluid milk supply chain, um, companies like Hudson Valley Fresh or the Batten Kill uh, Creamery, um, both located in New York State, are processing and distributing their own milk, their own fluid milk. Um, I think that um, an opportunity for farmers who want to keep milking cows but that don't want to get into the value-added game, which is a whole different skill set, I think that there should be a regional creamery in Sullivan County that would make a Sullivan County cheese, not a class four cheese, but a class <laughs> one delicious Sullivan County cheese that could be sold on many outlets around the city for a which, reasonable price. Which would be viable for them as opposed to in the national industry where you can't make class one, you can't have class one milk produced for cheese. Exactly. Um, and I don't know, I think, what do you see Hillary in terms of, um, you know, just on the environmental side, um, what are um, some hopeful things that you see with people in, in their farming practices? Do you think that there's more awareness of, um, 
you know, sort of doing things differently on, on the farm? Um, I, I can't really speak to that because part of my thesis I wanted to be was to go and actually visit these farms and see, you know, the physically see the mire that they're in. Um, but I think, I think there is hope. Um, these, these farms see what's happening to their, their small towns, how they're kind of crumbling and they know that they are the heart of these towns and that their, their success and their, um, their survival will regenerate, you know, the suburban New York. (laughs) Yeah. And will regenerate local economies. Well, so we have to, you know, we're running out of time, but Leah, I want you to talk just for two seconds because we've talked a lot about an idea that you have to sort of get at more of this mapping um, stuff or not mapping, but getting people from the city out into the country and learning about uh, food supply and how we can sort of help revitalize uh, these communities. Right. It's true. I think um, I read a statistic the other day that 80% of the population lives in urban areas. And so more and more we're dislocated or disconnected from the natural systems that we depend on, like um, food, right, and and nature. And so I think the more we can connect people through farm tours like like you're doing next in May, Anne, um, to, to the environment to their food system to really just being a part of it in simple ways it leads to inquiry and wanting to understand a little bit more about these these systems I I remember the first time I ever went to a farm and saw a piece of asparagus growing I was like in college I mean Uh, right really (laughs) yeah the first time I went to a dairy farm I graduated from college same thing and so most of us I mean really believe that asparagus grows in grocery stores and milk you know is is born in cartons that we then throw away and there is this this habituation that happens because we're so far apart from it and we just need to look to connect ourselves a little bit more consciously a little more deeply in different ways i think you know learning journeys and and trips to farms and different ways to connect to farmers especially can be such a powerful educational tool there's also a growing population of young farmers that are kind of taking hold of this this new ideology um, and really trying to fight the industrial system and saying, you know, we we are going to make a difference here. We're going to start our own farms and run them our own ways. Right here at Roberta's, right right over our heads, there is a farm growing. Um, It's all about creating alternatives. Yeah, exactly. Mm -hmm. Well, unfortunately, we are out of time, but Hillary, if people want to learn more about your research and um, is there a possibility for people to be able to see your map of the milkshed online or will there be in the future? I hope so. <laughs> it's yeah, it's it's not as complete as I would like it to be right now. Um, I'm hoping to pursue further research in this area because I met so many obstacles on my research odyssey. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I mean, well, stay tuned then um, to saxwillbecheese.com, and whenever that information does become available. Um, we will be sure to link to it so you can see um, Hillary's research because it's really compelling. Um, So thanks everyone for joining us and we'll see you next Sunday for another episode of Cutting the Curd.